0: Martha Tettenborn is a 35-year veteran, registered dietitian, low-carb health coach, and a recent ovarian cancer survivor. She used nutritional strategies to dramatically reduce her side effects from chemotherapy. And Martha is on a mission to share this information with others facing chemo. Martha, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story.
1: Well, thank you, Andrea, for having me. It's wonderful to be able to share my story.
0: (laughs) So take us back. um, How long ago was this and how did it all start? Because I know sometimes ovarian cancer has very few symptoms.
1: Yes, absolutely. They call it the cancer that whispers. Um, So it started in the summer of 2018. And I was 58 years old, and I was healthy, like absolutely healthy. In fact, smugly healthy, I would probably say. <laughs> uh, I had a private practice teaching people using low-carb um, diets to, um, to age well. To, you know, that was my, kind of my, my uh, target audience. And I had just started running again after a few years off because I had um, stress fractured my calf. and For a while, it was hard to run. But, anyways, I, I was just having a great summer. And um, I, in July, I got a text message from one of my best friends from forever. And she said, So, what are you up to on your plank? Um, because she'd been working out all winter. And I'd been kind of inspired by her to get back into doing some bodyweight exercises. Because really, all I like to do is run long and slow. And uh, so I got off the couch and I laid on the floor
0: <laughs> right, right
1: away. that very Right moment, away. I love that it. That very moment. And uh, I laid down on my belly, which I don't normally ever, ever do. And uh, there was something there that had never been there before. There was, it was like I was laying on an egg or something. Um, it was immediate, and it was um, dramatically different. Uh, like I say, I don't have grandbabies. I don't have puppies. I don't have any, you know, I can't see cancer that whispers because the symptoms are so nondescript. But anyways, that was definitely not nondescript and um I sat up reached for my phone and called my doctor and said there's something there and so about five days later I got into my doc and um, of course by then I had gone on to Dr. Google and
0: you know,
1: <laughs> tried to diagnose myself and I figured oh I, I must have a uterine fibroid I still had all my parts um and uh you know I, if it's that big enough to feel, it's probably going to have to come out. And so I'm probably facing a surgery. And Anyways, I had myself all diagnosed by the time I went. But my doctor, you know, <laughs> poked around in my belly and pushed and prodded and made a whole lot of really non-committal hums and haws and, you know, bad noises, and then sent me off for um, an urgent ultrasound, which being a Friday in Canada in the middle of summer, took another five days. Um, but anyways, I got this ultrasound, and by that afternoon, I knew that I had a huge ovarian cyst, um, one that was about um, 16 centimeters across when they diagnosed it. Whoa. So that's about six inches Wow, for, for American uh, listeners. And um, yeah, so it was already really big. And uh, so I was sent off to a gynecologist and had a bit of blood work to see whether or not the marker for ovarian cancer, which is a blood marker called CA 125, whether it was elevated, and it wasn't really, it was just a few notches above the top end of normal. Um, And my doctor said, you know, it's not the most accurate test, it has some false positives, and so don't worry about it, it's not cancer. And my gynecologist, same thing. It's not cancer. Don't worry about it. So um it So wait, they,
0: wait, question. Yeah. Even if it's not cancer, they know you have a huge cyst. Oh yeah. So still had there, to come out. <laughs> yeah, okay. So it still had to come out. Okay, good. All right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I, I went off to see the gynecologist. And um it took about two months because it was the middle of summer. I live in a small city the gynecologist that I was referred to um, was on a month's holiday. (laughs) Canadian summer, right? It's short and sweet. So (laughs) anyways, um, it took till the end of September and I went in and had day surgery. Um, Laparoscopically, they ruptured this cyst and um, deflated the balloon and pulled it out sort of thing. So I came home after a few hours with a couple of little tiny incisions but a whole lot of you know messed up insides it was pretty uncomfortable um but that was you know I figured that was that right Mm -hmm. and six days later I got a call from the gynecologist's office the surgeon's office and she said the doctor wants to see you again come tomorrow bring your husband oh god yeah and it's like okay I know exactly what that means um, because I work in healthcare. So, I mean, I get it. Right. And so I, yeah, I went in the next morning and they said that I had, um, that it had been ovarian cancer yeah. and stage one, but because I, um, because I had chosen to have it ruptured inside my abdomen and it was way too big to sort of encapsulate and kind of keep, keep the, um, the fluids from, you know, possibly leaking out, that there was the potential for what they called a spill, Um, meaning that the fluid from inside the cyst would have been spilled into my abdominal cavity. And if it contained cancer cells, then those cells could um, seed tumors elsewhere in the abdomen, which is what ovarian cancer, particularly high-grade serous ovarian cancer, apparently really likes to do stays in your pelvic cavity more than escaping elsewhere. And it seeds tumors on, you know, your abdominal wall or your diaphragm or the outside of your organs or in your omentum, which is that fatty layer that kind of holds all the organs in place. And um, so it was highly recommended that I have chemotherapy.
0: Um, Quick question though. Yeah it wasn't really your choice, right? (laughs) To have it ruptured, like the way they, the surgery, that wasn't your choice. That was the, what they did, right?
1: No, no. I mean, they discussed the options with me. Um, but like I said, nobody thought it was cancer. The, the marker that would have indicated cancer was really low. I mean, I've, I've read lots of stories since from ovarian cancer, um, patients and, you know, they'll, they'll have a CA 125 that comes back at, you know, 3000 or something. Mine was 42. And the top of the normal range is up to 36. So, So you know, it was barely anything, right. And it was a very, like, in terms of its physiology, it was just a big balloon. It was just a big, very simple fluid filled cyst. So there was no indication of solid tumor or anything like that. Now, it, Did continue to grow over the summer like between those two months between when i found it and when it was actually removed by the time i had it out like it was um it was above the level of my navel so it was like being about five months pregnant i'd have Mm -hmm. to sit down in a like i I could only wear certain things right and then i'd have to sit down in a chair and pull my waistband up over the bump (laughs) right as though you know just as though you're pregnant um and and because it's kind of loose in there, you have to be careful that you don't um bump it around. So um I was told pretty much right away that I had to stop running, um, which really pissed me off because I had finally got back to running. Um and uh and any other sort of bump and grind activities were off the, the menu for a while. Um <laughs> yeah you're right that's what I mean. <laughs> I'm looking at your face. <laughs> So, anyways, um, yeah. So once I once I knew that that's what it was. Um, that I, you know, I. You can't look back. You can't be pissed because you chose to have it taken out laparoscopically. I mean, I'm I'm nerdy enough in terms of medical things that I had gone on YouTube and I had watched laparoscopic cyst removal surgery, you know, with the scope and. And when the cysts are small, they can actually, they put like basically a plastic bag inside your abdomen and they will, they will disconnect the cyst so that it's floating, floating free. And then they will encapsulate it in the plastic bag. And then they pull all the edges of the plastic bag back out through the hole.
0: That's wild.
1: I know, and then they'll, then they'll poke the, the hole or poke the cyst and suck the fluid out. And then the whole bag and everything comes out, contents come out with it, and and your abdominal cavity has no chance of being um, contaminated in any way. But, I mean, even when I met with the locum surgeon in the middle of summer, she said like, oh, well, the biggest bags we have, and this was down in London, which is our regional cancer center, about three hours away. She says, even the biggest bags we have down there are about 10 centimeters. And your cyst is already about 15 or 16. So... We knew that wasn't a, an option, but um, I can also say that with this smugly healthy sort of attitude of mine, that I have never had surgery. Like I have had basically, what? I know basically nothing. I had my tonsils out when I was five, or no eight, and um, and I had a little tiny hematoma removed from my eyelid at one point. Uh, that's it. Like, I have never been opened up by So, I was terrified and I'm totally drug naive. Like, not a thing. I, I take maybe a dozen Tylenols a year, you know? Okay, so, that makes
0: a lot more sense. So, you had not had. Yeah. So, so, rather than being open up and cutting the whole thing out and getting it one big piece, this other option laparoscopically. It, it totally um, made sense. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was my kind of the decision I made. So, so at that point I was referred to a uh, gynecological oncologist,
0: sure. um,
1: at our regional cancer center, which is about three hours drive from where I live in rural Ontario. Um, and, uh, fabulous center and fabulous man that I was referred to. Um, and he highly recommended that I, um, that I do chemotherapy but also that I complete the standard of care for treatment for ovarian cancer which would be to have a hysterectomy and um you know let them have sort of a look around in there so right. the, the the ovaries and the tubes are already gone but um but that was kind of highly recommended plus I one of the chemotherapies that I was rec- that was recommended for me for stage one high-grade serous ovarian cancer um one of the ways that you can deliver it is to actually basically pour it into your abdominal cavity and just have it swish around in there. I know it
0: sounds crazy. It's, it sounds just icky, but yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: So it's called interperitoneal chemotherapy. So they actually, this type of, of cancer, um, isn't a, isn't an escape artist. It likes to kind of hang in the pelvic cavity and see tumors in there. So you can actually apply the chemo directly to, where it likes to be and so not that it was the easier route but I sort of said you know what I only intend to do this once so hit me with your best shot like let's let's get her done
0: and now, did you have the hysterectomy prior to chemo
1: I did yes you did. okay because I also had to have a port placed um for the delivery of this interperitoneal chemo so I had to go into a hospital and have an incision anyways and so basically to talk talk talked me into it it was really hard to decide I was going to do that because I'm just one of those people who thinks like if God put it there for a reason it needs you know there's no reason to take out a perfectly good organ right I'll die with it there but um but it came down to sort of the difference between a three inch incision and a six inch incision. And it's like, okay, if I have to go and do this anyways, yeah. Okay. Um, so I did, I, in early December. So the the surgery, we found the chemo or the cancer in early October. So beginning of December, I went to London and had a um, four day, three or four day hospital stay and had the full hysterectomy and the port placement. Um, so and then I, st- I came home for Christmas and started chemo in January. And I had six rounds of chemo every three weeks. Uh, paclitaxel which I had by IV, and uh, carboplatin, which I had by the interperitoneal port. Um, so for each of those, because it was interperitoneal, I had to do it in London. I wasn't able to mm-hmm. do it at our satellite cancer center because they only did IV. Um, that was part of the decision was that I was going to be willing to do that amount of travel um, because it's central Ontario in the winter.
0: <laughs> um, I actually yeah, we're got, talking January, right? January, January February,
1: now. March, yeah. April. Yeah. Yeah. I actually got storm stayed in uh, London one for one of my chemo treatments I couldn't get yeah. home because they closed all the roads up here and wow. um, so yeah I ended up having to stay at a friend's house for the night after
0: chemo <laughs> so in the preferred- was that the only treatment this these rounds of chemo and that yes. we were supposed to be done
1: yes okay. no there was no tumor to radiate so there was no radiation involved
0: right Makes sense.
1: Um, and there's no post-treatment uh, you know, hormonal suppression or anything like that. So I was basically let go at the end of, um, at, well, I guess it was the end of June, end of May, by the time I went back down, had the port removed. So the little, you know, day surge sort of thing. Um, and then had my sort of final visit with the oncologist. And um, uh, yeah, so th- then it was just like, you can decide for yourself whether you want to, um whether you want any sort of follow-up what the suggestion was you could follow your labs um, but just remember that you could never unsee a lab result and so if you're the kind of person that's super stressed by having your you know your CA 125 marker go up by one point or something you might not want to be that kind of person there will be a lot of people that will just go home and live their life and um and he basically said that if you get physical symptoms that there's something going on, um, come back and see us, that the treatment wouldn't really change too much um, if okay. there's a recurrence. Yeah. So he described it as you're sort of in group A or group B and group A, we got all the cells and, or, you know, if there was even cells there to get, that was the, the part that you struggle with is like, it's like, somebody dropped a bag of flour in the middle of the kitchen floor and there's going to be like little individual flour particles on every surface. Yeah. Possibly. And will you ever, you know, can you see them? Not really. Do you know they're there? Maybe. Do you, will you know if you got them? No, maybe. not really. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> Right. So you said, group A, you won't get a recurrence. And if you don't get any recurrence in about five years, you were in group A. And at that point, your risk of any kind of cancer drops to basically the same as the general population, which is five eh, percentish or so, he said. If you're in group B, then we didn't get them all. And some of them will have been resistive. And those are the ones that come back. And if they were resistive to the original treatment, then we need to look at something
0: further um so what happened you're killing me what happened
1: so I am as of next month I'm three years out since the end of chemo and uh I get my blood work done religiously every three months Good um, because I am that data nerd that wants to know exactly what's going on inside me um I have to pay I, I live in a system where most um health is covered in the right. Canadian system, but I have to pay for that CA 125 marker every three months. You do? I do. Yes, it's not covered by our drug, our provincial healthcare plan. Um, I also pay to have my vitamin D level checked every three months, because that's another factor that is preventative and protective. And I want to know, particularly being a white Caucasian, fine boned woman living in central Ontario, where you don't get out in the sun, except for about four months a year. (laughs) Um, I wanted to make sure that my vitamin D levels were strong. So um, I keep track of those things. My, um, my blood markers for glucose and insulin resistance, that kind of stuff, just to be sure that I'm, I'm all good. Um, And my CA 125, which was 42, when I still had the tumor inside me dropped to five by the end of chemo wow. and it has never moved off of that five. And I've had it done every three months for the last three years. So it is solid as a rock.
0: Nothing oh, ever moves. Wow.
1: I had it done a week ago. Um, so that's very reassuring for me that, uh, Sure that, you know, we got it. I, I feel incredibly blessed that this cyst was way too big for me to ignore, that nobody could just say, oh, well, we're gonna watch it, <laughs> you know? Right. Um, and uh, and that I was, that the cancer was caught early because only 20 to 25% of women get caught in uh, stage one. Usually it's late stage. And so ovarian cancer is considered quite um, deadly.
0: So, in your bio, I mentioned that you are a dietitian and you used very specific techniques and strategies to help you get through chemo. So, can you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, I sure can.
1: Um, I did not, I mean, I've been a dietitian for, like, say, coming up, well, more than 35 years, I guess.
0: Uh,
1: (laughs) Holy crap. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I had no idea until I started looking that uh, that cancer had a different metabolism than healthy cells. And that whole field of science was known about 100 years ago, and yet it got lost. Um, it got lost in the discovery of DNA and the fact that cancer has um, damaged DNA and the entire cancer industry and treatment and science and machinery and everything all sort of just just swept away from metabolism and into this field of genetic abnormalities. Um, The science has just recently been kind of re resurrected, rediscovered. And there's some really excellent researchers doing great work. But I was trained in the, in the 1980s, like when low fat was king, it was, you know, absolutely cutting edge science, right? The whole McGovern commission and all that, that affected how the entire Western world and eventually the whole world just thought that fat was evil.
0: And I, oh, that's how I was raised. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: And, and it's like, I, I practiced that way for my first probably 25 years. And I can tell you, I wasn't all that successful at really helping people. Um, but for cancer, all we really thought about as dietitians was helping people not lose weight, like basically, despite the side effects, and despite the cancer, helping them to not lose weight. And right. we did that with high calorie, high protein diets that used extra sugars and, you know, extra fats, nutrient, like not even nutrient density, calorie density in small quantities, because people were so sick from the, the, right. um, the treatments. So I was ter- like, say, completely drug naive. I was terrified of chemotherapy. Um, I mean, it's poison.
0: It's basically it targeted poison. And it's labeled poison like oh, people, yeah. people who have not been through this, you know, whether they're biohazard caregiver, everywhere. Yes. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's labeled
0: totally. that way.
1: Yeah. The, the the nurses are like wearing like yes. biohazard equipment and the Same bags thing. come with the orange biohazard signs on them. And it's like, you're going to pour that in me. Oh, yeah. great. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, I totally, um, they basically they're, they're targeted at the metabolism, um, cells that are metabolizing fast, basically. So the signals of metabolism or growth, and that's what chemo is targeted at. So it's quite a blunt weapon, Um, which is one of the reasons I think that it's so incredibly hard for children with cancer because they're growing in every which way. Adults, we don't have a lot of active growth areas. I mean, we have our hair follicles, Um, Our bone marrow that produces all our blood components, like your white blood cells and red blood cells and immune system components and stuff. And the lining of your GI tract right from your mouth all the way to the other end is rapidly turning over. Um, But a lot of our body is kind of in maintenance mode. As adults, we're not actively growing, yeah. um, so the parts that are actively growing are the parts that get hit by chemo, and that's why so many people with chemo lose their hair and their, um, you know, their their blood values all drop. Their immune system is affected, um, and I, you know, I I did have those symptoms, but um, but once I discovered that that cancer has a different metabolism, like that just blew my mind. And then when I realized that chemotherapy is targeting metabolism, like once you start talking about metabolism, you're talking about fuel.
0: yeah.
1: And fuel is nutrition. And nutrition is my shtick. Like that's where <laughs> I live, right? <laughs> so it's like, I, I, think I, I think there's things we could do. And I started looking and, well, my God, there, there is. There's research being done. There's speakers at conferences. I mean, three years ago, it wasn't anywhere near as common a topic as it is even now. And, uh, and so I started thinking like, okay, I already, I was already in the low carb field. I had already done the primal health coach certification. I already had a a low carb slash keto practice. And so it's like, well, my God, cancer eats sugar. Cancer loves sugar. Cancer metabolizes sugar in an entirely different way than healthy cells. If we can cut down sugar and keep insulin low, because insulin is a growth factor for cancer. Um, and insulin goes up in response to your sugar intake. So if we can keep that low, then we can actually um, maybe stress the cancer cells. And then when the cancer cells can't get the growth factors and the energy that they want, they're stressed and then you hit them with something. And that's where the chemo or the radiation or the hyperbaric oxygen, or you know there's a variety of traditional and alternate therapies that are being used but you pulse them or you hit them while they're, while they're stressed. And yeah. so the, the treatments become more effective. And so I thought, wow, like I can, I can do that. But then it went beyond that because if you get into ketosis, there are a lot of parts of your body that are very happy burning ketones for, as an alternate fuel, um, particularly your brain.
0: Would you explain to a layman's audience what is keto? What does it mean to be ketogenic? What does that diet even look like? Just so people sure. have kind of a, a you know a base understanding.
1: Yeah, sure. So ketones are an alternate fuel source that's made in your liver when your carbohydrate intake is really low. Um, so a ketogenic diet really just refers to a diet that is low enough in carbohydrates to put your body into ketosis, and that can look like a lot of different things. So there's, you know, there's all kinds of terms out there, like clean keto and dirty keto. <laughs> you know. um, what they basically mean is how many processed foods and how much cheating you're doing while still keeping yourself in ketosis.
0: Oh, uh, okay. I didn't yeah, know that. I that's didn't know that that's what, what,
1: that's what dirty keto means. Okay. Um, as, as much as anything. So a clean keto is, is like meat and, and low carb vegetables, basically, um, maybe a few berries and healthy fats so um to be in ketosis the the kind of level of, of carbohydrate intake varies depending on who you are and your activity level and your size and all that but generally it's below about 50 grams a day of carbohydrates of um uh, metabolizable carbohydrates so not usually you don't usually count fiber because it stays in your gut for the most part and is digested and, and metabolized by your gut by bacteria. But the parts that you can absorb, which is like sugar and um, starches, which your body breaks down and then absorbs the sugar. So if you can keep that really low, then you your body will respond by creating ketones. And um, you can do that by being um, all carnivore. Um, some people do it that way. You, but one of the fastest ways is fasting,
0: Hmm.
1: just nothing. Don't eat anything. (laughs) Your body will be fine. Um, and it will produce these ketones. Um, so what I wanted to do was to go into each, I wanted to keep the cancer from having a happy growth environment. So I, I was strictly ketogenic for the entire time I was on chemo. Wow. Um, and then I wanted to be even deeper into ketosis when I went into each um, cancer treatment, because what I discovered was that when you fast, your, your healthy cells in your body respond to the lack of a fuel source or, you know, fuel coming in. By quieting themselves down, they go into kind of a maintenance, um, you know, clean up and repair sort of mode. And they just they they're I call it stealth mode because basically the the metabolism slows down enough that the chemotherapy, which is targeted at high metabolizing cells, misses them. It just flies right overhead and heads for the cancer cells that have the big red flashing lights on them. So. Your healthy cells don't get hit the same way by the chemotherapy, and and of course side effects are exactly that—they are your healthy cells being hit by the chemotherapy, and the fast-producing, you know, the fast-metabolizing growth sort of healthy cells. So things like mouth sores, um, GI problems, nausea, and vomiting, and and diarrhea, and constipation, and and, uh, and then all the bone factors like your, your white blood cells and your red blood cells and so on, um, all those things can be impacted by being, in, you know, deep in ketosis when you go through the chemotherapy because your healthy cells will just quiet down.
0: Did you have any of those typical side effects that you were just talking about? And if you did, were they definitely less, you know, and more manageable? So, I mean, did Okay. So dramatically
1: less. Yes. Okay. Um, I did six courses of Kibo and the, they're not easy drugs. I was expected to have nausea, uh, mouth sores, um, possibly throwing up, you know, they give you lots of drugs to kind of help minimize that. But most people feel pretty lousy for, you know, the the week after sort of thing. And um, my experience was dramatically different. The other thing that's expected is that each that they're cumulative and each one gets worse than the one before.
0: Right. That's typically that's what happens. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And that totally didn't happen either. In fact, each one got a little lighter than the one before. So I went through six rounds of chemo with no mouth sores, um, almost no nausea, uh, never, never threw up, never missed a meal unless I was fasting, uh, never missed making a meal. Um, Like that's my job in my house and I like it that way. So. I would, I would get up and it might just be bacon and eggs for supper or something, but I would make every meal. Um, And then when I tired out, I'd get back in my armchair, my recliner, and um, I was never horizontal, I was never in bed. Um, For a day or two after chemo, I might have a, you know, a a half an hour nap in my chair sort of thing, which I never nap unless I'm like deathly ill. So, you know, even that was minimal, absolutely minimal. And um, I never had peripheral neuropathy. I was terrified wow. of that because yeah. that's a, a side of like, nerve damage in your fingers and toes. Thing, that's
0: very you know? severe. And it can yeah. last
1: for months afterwards.
0: It can last and, for life. Ugh, yeah. 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 Oh, I mean, yeah.
1: I'm a knitter. Like knitting is my my Zen, my happy place, right? And, and it's like, I was terrified it would have, of that.
0: It would have taken that away from you. Yeah. yeah. Just, yeah. just the people I know. Did you did you lose any hair since I know for many? Oh, women, gosh, I- yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Oh, yeah. I was bald as a pinball. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so couldn't stop that part. But luckily, our hair no, grows back.
1: Those are those are sort of second week effects of the chemotherapy, um, the bone marrow suppression and the hair loss. So 14 days after your first treatment, you start losing hair. And I did 14 days after my first treatment. And so I just took Matters into my own hands, and I had my husband shave my head, um, and I was bald for the next six months. So yeah, which is also, I I did a blog post about it because it was um, a fascinating experience. Your head is so cold, like you have short hair, like me. I think from the mm-hmm. look yeah. of it. Yeah,
0: yeah, I do now. Yeah,
1: and um, you have no idea how much insulation is on your even short hair until you don't have it. I, yeah. I literally I stood up from getting my head shaved. And moved across my, just moved across my kitchen floor. And the breeze of moving across a room made my head hurt. It was
0: Oh, stunning. gosh. Yeah. Wow. People, people don't tell you that stuff. During this time, what was your worst moment, if there was one?
1: Um, I didn't, you know what? I honestly didn't have a worst moment. I went into this feeling like I had this whole process by the tail. Mm-hmm. Um, knowing that there was things that I could do that would impact on my, um, my journey was so empowering. It was so powerful. In fact, my, my blog and my, you know, I started a blog because I was just annoyed that the world didn't know about this stuff. Plus, I knew how much stories meant to me when mm-hmm. I was, you know, I, I watched everything that said my ovarian cancer story when on YouTube when I was, you know, researching. Um, so I wanted my story out there. And so I, I kind of went through this whole thing like, I'm, I'm awesome. I am awesome. People would kind of go, oh, how are you? You know, thinking that I was like, lousy. And I'm like, I don't want your pity. <laughs> No, I didn't yeah. say that I didn't say that. But I'd it'd be like, you know what? I have four or five kind of low energy days, and um, and then I'm awesome for two weeks. It was, you know, it was almost normal, except that I was wearing a hat all winter.
0: <laughs> you know, which is the- not that unusual. Uh, given well, that in of the this. office, it is kind of oh, yeah. Okay, that's good. <laughs> yeah. So how is this? I find this really fascinating. How has this changed your practice as a dietitian now that you've lived it and gone through it as a patient?
1: Well, that's that's the thing. I have just completely um, become impassioned to let people know that there are things that you can do for yourself that will impact positively on your cancer experience, particularly around chemotherapy and chemotherapy side effects. Like you don't need to be the hapless victim of you know this stuff, and you don't need to be horizontal for a week. Um, you can, you know, and, and fasting is not the hardest thing in the world. People think it is, but it's really not. Um, you have the power to do these things, and you are so motivated. There is nothing like a motivated cancer patient. For yeah,
0: you know, I... unless
1: you're like pregnant and protecting your baby by what yeah. you're doing health wise. But um but no, there's you know, these people are so grateful for information. They're so motivated to do the right thing. So I have um I I ended up having to give up a lot of things to make room for cancer because I wore a lot of hats in my life and you know I picked some of them back up. Um but what, what I,
0: something you gave up.
1: Well, I, I work in long-term care. Uh I'm in gerontology and, and I work in long-term care facilities as a self-employed contractor providing the dietitian services. And so I gave up all but one home. I, I was working in three at the time. Um, I gave up two of them and just stayed with one and it was two days a week. So they were very flexible and allowed me to keep working what I could. And that worked out great. Um, I was the pastor of my little congregation and I had to give that away um, for about eight months. Um, I, I was deeply involved in the local little theater um, I do wardrobe and backstage, um, my husband loves to be out in front. I'm, I'm definitely a backstage person, um, <laughs> I
0: love it. but great.
1: I, I was supposed to be the wardrobe lead on the November play. And when I discovered I had cancer, I had to tell them I couldn't do it. And, you know, just kind of back out. Um, so I, I, I'm the mom to a special needs son who is, um, Pretty high functioning, but, you know, still heavily parented. I couldn't give that up, obviously. So, you know, still talk to him multiple times a day. Um, But yeah, so and I had a private practice, which I called Mm. Primal RD and was based on low carb um, for healthy, awesome aging and, you know, chronic disease prevention and treatment. Um, I was trying to do that all in person and I was not getting any support from my local doctors in this small Ontario city. So, uh, so I, when I started back up with a private practice, I went into more of the cancer coaching sort of field. I call myself the cancer doula because I, I love the idea that a doula is a person, usually a woman who helps somebody going through a medical process. Yeah. So for, for example, a birth doula doesn't deliver the baby. A birth doula is there to support the mother. And that's how I feel about what I do for cancer treatment. I don't know, I don't provide the treatment, but I help support the person who's going through the treatment.
0: Right. Um,
1: so I started a new kind of virtual, of course, between pandemic and, you know, everything. Um, so it's kind of a virtual health coaching um, process. I can't operate as a registered dietitian outside of my province that holds my license.
0: It seems to me because of your experience as a dietitian, and just because of your get-to-it-get-it-done personality that you were really well prepared. But is there one thing that you wish you had known at the very beginning, one thing you wish someone had told you?
1: I wish I'd known this stuff existed before now. I mean, before I had to find it for myself. God. I wish that dietitians in all of the cancer centers were versed in the metabolism of cancer and the fact that lifestyle changes can seriously impact on how people go through cancer treatment. I mean, we know, you know, I always said, Oh, well, I'm more interested in cancer prevention. I'm never gonna get cancer. Um, and I said that despite the fact that my mother had premenopausal breast cancer. Um and I mean, her sisters and her are both in their 90s and, and currently still living well. And, and my mom died at 55 of breast cancer yeah. after a 10-year journey with it. So um, so I always said, I don't think I have any propensity for cancer. Um, and I, I was more concerned with, um, with prevention.
0: If you could only do one thing to improve health care where you live in Canada, what would it be and why?
1: Oh well, (laughs) I would love for private practice dietitians to be covered under our provincial health care system. So that people can come and find out what they can do for themselves to stay healthy instead of getting into the sick care system. Yeah. There's just not enough attention on wellness. And you know, there are there are registered dietitians out there who will help people you know get healthier in a variety of different ways whether or not they buy entirely into the low carb healthy fats aspect and ancestral health sort of stuff that i do but even so like just so that people have more options um and and you know trained options because there's a lot of people out there whose approach
0: to this is kind of nebulous or their training is nebulous so yeah yeah that's I would 100% agree with that. Martha, are you ready for the ThriveR rapid fire questions? Okay,
1: <laughs> I guess. <laughs> do I have a choice?
0: Nope. You no, you do not okay. have a choice. No, I didn't think so. <laughs> Beach, desert, or mountains?
1: Ah, uh, mountains.
0: Beach Boys, Beatles, or Rolling Stones? Beatles. What is one word that best describes you? Positive. And before you die, what is the last song you want to hear?
1: Pachelbel's Canon. By? Pachelbel. Oh, he, okay. Yes. Pachelbel's Canon is from like the 1700s. It's a beautiful oh, wow. piece of music. You would recognize it if you heard it. And it is a song that, um, that connects my husband and I.
0: Oh, oh. Uh. Gotta make a playlist. Gotta make a playlist. Uh, the last <laughs> meal you want to eat.
1: Last, assuming I still have all my teeth at ninety-five. Sure. Okay. Um, it's probably going to involve a small steak and some um, chicken wings. Yeah. <laughs> um, and the chicken wings will be breaded with pork rinds and cooked until they're super crispy. Um. You're and then would, out with, oh yeah, oh yeah. And it w- would probably be followed up with a small glass of uh Zacapa 23-year-old rum.
0: Ooh, ooh yes. I love my, that. All my right. My favorite
1: sipping rum. I have about two little glasses a week, and it's absolutely it's the only one.
0: <laughs> From Guatemala. Worth the <laughs> money. <laughs> I'm gonna have to look that up. What about the last person or people you want to see?
1: I want to see my husband. Well, actually, I might not want to see him.
0: I hope I hope we die very close to each
1: other. Let's put right. it that way. I don't know whether he'll still be there, but I want to see my kids. Um, and I look forward to seeing my mom and dad when I get to the other oh. side.
0: My mom's and- been gone
1: since I was 19. So, Oh, gosh. Yeah.
0: And what about the last words you will speak?
1: Um... God, you're going to make me cry. Um, I've led a blessed life. Aww. I really have.
0: And aside from CancerU, what's one resource that you would recommend for cancer patients and caregivers? And also, please tell people how they can get in touch with you.
1: Okay. Well, based on all the things that I learned, I wrote a book. <laughs> um, and I published it about a year and a half ago and it talks about my journey. So it has my story in it. But it also has um, information about cancer metabolism, and using a ketogenic diet and using a fasting protocol. And I basically had to kind of build my own because there wasn't anything out there. The research is being done. It's been done in animal models. It's um, there's case studies, and there's there's work being done in humans. But you know, cancer people can't wait. We just can't wait for the research to catch up. And there is very little risk involved in using these um, strategies. So
0: what's the title of your book? And how can people find it?
1: Okay, so the book is called hacking chemo. Because we're not suggesting you don't do traditional therapies. We're saying you can hack what you do with the traditional therapy. So hacking chemo, using ketogenic diet, therapeutic fasting, and a kick ass attitude to power through cancer and you can um find me at my website and you can find links to the book um pages also at my website um which is just my name martha com, all Perfect. lowercase and the blog is like the it opens to the blog so the blog um is there there's all kinds of recipes in the blog there's my story there's nice. some research um yeah so i i try i i'm not a prolific blog writer but uh but there's a bunch of stuff there. And the chemo fasting protocol that I actually used is the first blog post I ever put up. So it's there. But also, if you sign up, uh, if you put in your email, then you get a download, um, which is the chemo fasting protocol all in one page.
0: Nice. Okay, we'll put a link to that in the workshop and the show notes. Martha, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story today.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It's been really great to talk to your audience and uh, I'm, I'm all about getting the message out. So I appreciate that.
0: Thank you for listening to the Cancer Youth Rivers podcast. If you like our podcast, give us a five star rating and review and tell your friends about us. Subscribe on Apple Podcast, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you want to share your cancer journey with the world and be a guest on our podcast, go to our website, cancer.university, that's cancer.university, and hit the contact button or click the contact link in the show notes. You've been listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast, real people, true stories.